Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is once again Galatians 5 verses 16 to 26. Last week, we considered primarily the content of just verses 16 to 18 of this text. This morning, we take up verses 19 to 26, and you have the Bible in front of you to be following along. Last week, we started off reading, if you recall, four passages from the Old Testament. This morning, I'd like to begin with Jesus. So, if you would... Uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, or you can just listen, but I'm going to read quite a section. So if you would turn left from Galatians, go through Romans, Corinthians, Romans, Acts, until you come to John. John 15, having heard the Galatians text read twice now, and then already having seen some of its main components last week, listen to Jesus in John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide 
so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now there's several points of connection between John 15 and Galatians 5. And no doubt you heard some of those and picked up on some of those. But let me draw your attention especially to this one, how Jesus ended. The summary of it all, verse 17 of John 15, if you're there. These things I command you, Jesus says, that is to say, the things I just now commanded you, abide in me, and I in you, abide in my love. These things I command you, why? To what end? What does Jesus want to see happen above all things in the lives of his followers? Well, it's right there in verse 17. So that you will love one another, says the Lord. All this fruit, if you keep my commandments, Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. What's it all for? What's it all meant to bring about? And the answer is, so that you will love one another. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 Preceding the text that was read this morning, just a bit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul writes, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of what's in verses 16 to 26 in the text that Pam read this morning that was also read last week, all of this is the outworking of verse 14, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that love look like? Uh, We'll see that in a minute. But first, in the way I open this sermon, don't lose this observation. This is an important observation to make if you know anything about New Testament scholarship. Jesus and Paul want the same thing. Jesus and Paul want the same thing. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus says. I in you. Or in other words, the Spirit. Right? It's the Spirit of Jesus dwelling in us. Is it not? It's such a simple point. But it eluded me for years as a Christian. So if, if, you, if this has not yet sunk in for you, that's okay. Let it sink in now because it took me a long time to get it. Don't miss it like I did. Here's Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. 
Now, did you hear that very simple statement? That the Spirit of God is the same as the Spirit of Christ. This is what it means to have Christ in us, brothers and sisters. We have the Spirit. Nothing makes much sense in the New Testament if you're not clear on that point. Somehow, I wasn't clear on that point for several years as a Christian. Probably you already were, but just in case. Paul and Jesus want the same thing. And it comes about the same way. By the Spirit, Galatians 5. By Jesus abiding in us, John 15 so that you will love one another. And so verse 14 then, in the context of Galatians 5, holds out the promise that we who have the Spirit are called to freedom. And that that freedom means we serve one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. That then remains Paul's focus all the way through chapter 5. Does it not? You heard it read this morning. Look at verse 25, Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And what will the result of that be? Paul can command them in verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, and being one another. It's the opposite of loving one another, of course. Please observe that for Paul, walking by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, has everything to do with the corporate life of the community of God, the church. Not simply the internal life of the individual believer. I mean, if you went home last week and thought about the text and the sermon and then you come back here this week, you've perhaps already realized that you can't fully apply Galatians 5 just sitting alone in your chair at home allowing the Spirit to transform you. Not quite. (laughs) Do you need to be transformed? Yes. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is working out love among one another. That's the idea. We'll come back to that. But I want to go one step further with you first. Just sort of making sure a number of things are clear this morning before we look at verses 19 and following. Because if I'm right, Paul and Jesus are agreed that the purpose is that we will love one another. So then here's my further question. Why is that the most important thing? Why? Why is that the most important thing? I mean, doesn't John 15 and Galatians 5, don't both of those texts lead us to at least wonder about that? It's not explicitly answered in Galatians 5. It it more or less is in John 15. Why is loving one another what abiding in Jesus and Jesus, Jesus abiding in us by the Spirit is for? Why is that the fulfillment fulfillment of the whole law. Seems like an important question to me. It's not a tricky question. The Bible answers it. It's because that's what God is like, brothers and sisters. It's because that's what God is like. 
the Christian life is a life in which you are meant to increasingly reflect God, the character of God, the righteousness of God in your life more and more. I said the answer was more or less there in John 15, and I see it when Jesus says this, abide in my love. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I think implying there that we then love others like Jesus loved us. But we find it clearly in texts like 1 John chapter 4, in verse 7 and following. Here's 1 John 4, verse 7 and following. Beloved, listen to this, friends. Let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another... God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Did you hear that? It's his love perfected in us. That's what it's all about. Or as Jesus puts it, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Sometimes I worry that we somehow lose sight of the point. We're supposed to be like God, brothers and sisters. Perfectly in the end, not perfectly yet, but starting now, right? 1 John 3, verse 2. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's the goal. This is Galatians 5. This is Paul's message to the Galatians. You're free to love. For to love is to be like God. And that, I submit to you, is why love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, last week we considered then in verses 16 to 18 of Galatians 5 the truth that you either live your life in this freedom, walking by the Spirit, fulfilling the law, or you live your life in slavery, captive to the desires of the flesh, under sin, under the curse of the law. That was verses 16 to 18. And then beginning in verse 19 then this morning, we see then what this looks like. The manifestation first of the flesh and then of the spirit. And it'd be difficult to imagine two more utterly contradictory ways of life. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, Paul says there in verse 19, if, you, if you're looking there. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Fifteen items in that list. It's not comprehensive, of course, not exhaustive. And things like these, Paul says at the end of it, things like these are what the flesh-driven life looks like. But there is a significant point Paul's making here. And it's not one that we 21st century readers of a text like this automatically see. It's there, but we don't see it clearly because we're not familiar with the presentation of this kind of vice list in the ancient world. This is a convention. Paul, in fact, uses it in several places in his letters, you probably know. It's here in Galatians, it's in Corinthians, and it's in other places. Jesus even uses this convention at one point in Mark. Every time Paul uses a list like this, it's different. It's never the same. So every time there's something that Paul's emphasizing, some point that Paul's making in the way he structures the list. And here in Galatians, the key is this. The details are a bit much, but the overall point's clear, so I want to try at least to get to that. Paul intentionally in this list begins and ends with items that the Galatian believers would absolutely recognize as evil. In fact, many of the items that start and end the list appear in Jewish traditions in contexts of lists like this. So Paul begins with three items that focus on sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Then come two items that are focused on worship, but wrong worship, illicit worship, idolatry, sorcery, so Paul begins that list. Then at the end, the final two items of the list relate specifically to excesses of the Roman culture, drunkenness, orgies. Paul's simply saying, you no longer belong to that world. And you see, here's the point. The believers in Galatia would not have imagined living out such deeds as those there at the beginning and at the end of Paul's list. Clearly, those are deeds of the flesh, totally unacceptable behavior. They, they would have deplored them, and all Jews, all God-fearing persons would have. Which is precisely why Paul places them around the eight items that he knows will challenge the Galatians and the agitators from Jerusalem directly. Does that make sense? In all likelihood, the Galatian Christians... We're not practicing sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. They weren't taking part in Roman drunkenness and orgies. Nothing in the letter, at least, suggests that any of that was at issue in Galatia. But things such as enmity, perhaps better translated, or in your version might be translated as hatred, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Those things apparently had 
become characteristic, at least temporarily, of these congregations as a result of the theology of the circumcisers, the the agitators from Jerusalem coming in. And so Paul crafts a list, catch this, Paul crafts a list that focuses on those eight things, both by virtue of their quantity, that there's eight terms, some of which are almost synonymous in what they mean, it's the sheer bulk of it, and he focuses on them by placing them between what would have been the evident works of the flesh. You see, that's why Paul says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident and everyone's ready for his list. Well, they think they are. And in fact, the first few are exactly what they're expecting. And in fact, the last couple are exactly what they're expecting, but then he's got them for the middle, right? They would have expected those first few and those final ones, but to put in between those, this kind of breakdown in interpersonal relationship, in love, to suggest, as Paul is clearly doing, that these are on the same plane as these other items. I mean, think about that. That almost strikes you as surprising, doesn't it? Orgies, drunkenness, on the same plane as envy? Fits of anger? It's hatred and all its manifestations that Paul lists for them. And Paul's saying these sins of relationship are every bit as serious as the ones you know will meet with God's judgment in the end Galatians because they're just the opposite of love. That's the point. And Paul's warning is one we need to hear, isn't it? It is the practice of none other than these that will prohibit the inheritance of the kingdom of God, he says. And the reason, you know now, I spent the first 20 minutes on the reason, why is that true? It's because God is love. Because such works of the flesh do not describe the behavior of believers in God. These are the marks of unbelievers. Referring to those eight central items, one commentator says it well, I think, so I'll quote him. Experience would suggest that this difficulty is not peculiar to the Galatian churches alone. But sin is sin. And what some of us might be willing to brush off with a, well, nobody's perfect attitude, Paul is quite prepared to see as deeds of the flesh that stand in utter contradiction to those whose lives are led by the Spirit. Do you see? And so then, of course, it is to the fruit of the Spirit that Paul then turns in verse 22. But, Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And make, if you would, the very basic observation I have been making from the beginning of the sermon, that these items have to do with the corporate life of the community. Not just with the internal life of the individual believer. Do you see that? I mean, yes, individual believers must love, must work toward peace, must express forbearance, must be kind, good, 
characterized by gentleness, but reading this list in this context, perhaps something else jumps out at you, as Paul would surely have intended it to. Perhaps it occurs to you that these are virtues that characterize God. Do they not? In fact, though we don't have time to consider it in any detail, with the exception of the last one, the the Greek word for self-control, every word on this list appears in the scriptures with reference to the character of God. Every one. Do you see... Paul is reminding the Galatians that the spirit at work in them is making them more and more like God. Because these are the ways God acts towards us. Right? And so Paul's point must be that so they are to do within the believing community. I mean, we could look at all of them, but the list begins with the key from which the others derive. They are to love. They are to demonstrate that which is the very essence of the character of God as seen in his relationship to his people. If you're a note taker, jot down Romans 5 verse 5. Here's a key verse. Romans 5 verse 5. Paul says there, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There it is. Romans 5, verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And just as God's love is full of forbearance, patience, kindness, gentleness toward his people, so is the Galatians' love to be patient, kind, gentle, Friends, that's the point. Do you believe that? That it's not simply theory? It's not simply an ideal? It's not simply abstract reality, be nice if it could be true, Paul? That we could be like God? Do you believe that the Spirit has poured this love into your heart? The Bible says it. Verse 13 of Galatians 5, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, through love, serve one another. Paul's not asking them, Paul's not asking you to do something you can't do. He's asking you to live the way that the Spirit has equipped you to live. It is the point that Paul's making for the Galatians, that the Spirit himself brings it about, the fruit of the Spirit, even as we are charged to keep in step with what the Spirit brings. This must be the key point. Love like this is the result of being loved by the God whose love has been lavished on us in his Son, his Son who likewise loved us and gave himself for us, and by whose indwelling presence we now live the Spirit. 
Love isn't something you can do or feel on your own. Not this kind of love. We can't take a text like this and distort love into simply good feelings towards someone. Love is defined biblically as self-sacrificial giving of oneself for another. Not what you feel for another exclusively. One commentator says, love heads this list of virtues over against the works of the flesh precisely because it stands as the stark opposite of the self-centeredness of most of the items on the former list. And with love at the head, what a list it is, right? The opposite of the works of the flesh. Instead of enmity, joy that characterizes our own lives and life together as Christians. Instead of strife, peace that brings unity among brothers and sisters. Instead of fits of anger, patience and long-suffering towards those who may need it the most. Instead of jealousy, kindness that actively shows grace. Instead of rivalries or dissensions or divisions or envy, goodness that does good for another, faithfulness that trusts the Lord and thus moves in love towards others, gentleness or meekness that counts others more significant than oneself, and self-control that knows how to pursue the will of God in all these things. Against such things there is no law, Paul says. In verse 23. Why not? Because the law was added because of transgressions, Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 19. Remember that? That the law exists because people are evil, not because they're good. That it exists, therefore, against sin, but not against such things as these. There's no need for the law to say, You shall not kill to people who by the Spirit are loving one another. There's no need for the law to say, do not covet to those who are actively pursuing the good of others out of kindness. Isn't that so? You fulfill the law, Christian, whose heart has been changed. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that having happened, the Spirit comes and etches the law on your heart that God's people will obey Him. It is the righteousness of God Himself. It is the righteousness of God Himself found in you, found in his children, reflecting his likeness in our lives together and in the world. It is, if we had the time to develop it, because it's where Paul's going at the very end of Galatians, it is the beginning of new creation. It's you. It's your heart. It is what Paul's already said in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Abide in my love, Jesus says. Last week I said this passage poses a question for us. Are we living lives directed by the Spirit or by the flesh? Paul's not suggesting a kind of perfectionism. The perfection comes only with the full hope of righteousness. (laughs) But let us see that he is saying that believers have left the realm of the flesh. That the death blow has been dealt. (laughs) That struggle with the flesh will be an ongoing part of this present life, but that according to Paul, the believer's mind is one that has been transformed by the Spirit. That quite simply, the old way of life no longer holds the same attraction it once did. It's Romans chapter 6 as we close. Romans chapter 6, Paul writes, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So then, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.